Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode eight. In this episode, I talk with Kelly Farquharson and Julie Walter about how to have crucial conversations. Have you ever avoided talking to someone because you were afraid they may not handle it well? Have you felt that heat creeping up your neck when someone says something you don't agree with? We talk about when a conversation is considered crucial, how to handle these conversations, and what makes them so crucial to being an effective leader for change. This conversation is part of a series on leading literacy change that I've created for a course that I teach online at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. I have Kelly Farquharson and Julie Walter here on this episode to talk about crucial conversations. Kelly, I'll have you start by introducing yourself. Great. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here again chatting with you guys. Um, my name is Kelly Farquharson, and I'm an associate professor at Florida State University in the School of Communication Science and Disorders. And my research focuses on how children with speech and language impairments achieve classroom success. Um, I'm here today to talk a little bit about crucial conversations, and I'm really excited to talk about this with both you, Tiffany, and you, Julie, because um, a, really the, the main reason that I am a researcher, and certainly the researcher that I am today, is because of both of you. Um, and so this really started for me through the ASHA Leadership Development Program, which is where I met Julie for the first time and was inspired to pursue a research degree, which I completed with Tiffany in Nebraska. Um, and through that training program, we learned a little bit about um, what we called in that program courageous conversations and so that really got me thinking about this idea of collaboration and how we um, need to really work on that specific skill of becoming um, open and honest and vulnerable with um, with our leadership abilities and with the people that we may be leading and then I learned about the crucial conversations book through Julie and that became an active part of um, my doctoral training with Tiffany in her lab in Nebraska and so um, this is really in many ways coming full circle for me so I'm excited to be here and you can't see it but I, Julie and I are just smiling ear to ear so <laughs> Yes. Well, uh, thank you, Kelly. That's a lovely introduction. And yes, I am beaming. Uh, it is so <laughs> wonderful to be here. And thank you, Tiffany, uh, for this invite. So, so I'm Julie Walter. I uh, currently serve as chair for the School of Speech, Language, Hearing, and Occupational Sciences at uh, University of Montana, uh, where I met uh, originally uh, Tiffany. Uh, we graduated with our PhD. Uh, at the same time, uh, different schools in Kansas, and uh, Tiffany and I, I laugh because we were the only two PhD students that would talk to each other across the aisle of, of different uh, Kansas schools, um, but it's been wonderful uh, to go through uh, my career uh, alongside uh, Tiffany and then meeting Kelly along the way and I call myself her fairy god mentor uh, and uh, own that uh, role very much. Uh, but in terms of leadership, I think 
think um, it has been a journey and uh, one of the, the pieces, you know, so I do do research in language and literacy uh, uh, right alongside with Tiffany. You know, we currently have our grant uh, focusing on that longitudinal piece of screening and providing and thinking about uh, best treatments. But over the course of my career, I've really recognized that there really is this challenge in how to implement and, and see what we know to be current best practices in schools, in uh, practice itself. And uh, it's been a, a journey to think about uh, and be curious about why is that? Why isn't uh, the science that we know to be so good? Why isn't it being implemented? And I think that's part of our roles as leaders. Um, I also, uh, in my role as a, a department or a school chair, uh, who is focused on curriculum uh, for training our, our future uh, leaders uh, in our profession. I've also thought a lot about how do we think about this from a curriculum perspective. And I'm thrilled uh, that Tiffany, you've integrated this into your program as well as Kelly, um, that these are really important pieces that we as, and I would say, because we're uh, mostly and many times female in this profession as well. Uh, how do we think about our roles and, and how uh, we have these, again, crucial conversations? I'm going to say one more thing is that um, one thing that Kelly and I learned in this 11 years ago uh, leadership program through the American Speech Hearing Association uh, is that uh, there was a term that we always talked about. Uh, to surround yourself with uh, nutritious people. And that's another uh, theme that has gone through my life. So again, I'm with the most nutritious people right here having this conversation, and I'm excited to talk more about how you might develop a team uh, that's going to be really helpful in this journey. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I will say that my interest in crucial conversations came from having to be a reluctant manager. So when I mm -hmm. obtained my PhD, I thought I would be a scientist and I've been fortunate enough to have funding from the National Institutes of Health and Department of Education. And I had that funding fairly early in my career. So I graduated in 2006 and by 2010, just four years out, I had several grants and I had about <clears throat> 50 to 70 people in my lab and several that were full-time and I felt very overwhelmed with the task of leading this group and I also felt very overwhelmed with how to communicate expectations and how to just effectively um, lead this team of diverse individuals and so that got me thinking about better ways to have conversations and wanting to start reading leadership books um, and so I read several books and one of them was this one recommended by Julie and Kelly. And uh, then I also had the team read it. At that time I had six, you know, it was including doc students, postdocs, full-time project managers with a variety of experiences, read crucial conversations. And we had a discussion about what it meant uh, <clears throat> and in terms of our leadership. Um, I also read uh, Death by Meetings, which kind of felt like that case also as a leader, but that's not the topic of today's podcast. <laughs> so we'll focus on crucial conversations. So Kelly, what, yes. what makes a conversation crucial? Isn't every conversation crucial? What are the characteristics of a crucial conversation? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to clarify because, I mean, in many settings, in many cases, our conversations are crucial um, and, and across the individuals that we're talking with in the settings that we're in. I think one of the biggest um, maybe differences is this kind of three tenant 
idea of a crucial conversation and um, it's often depicted using a triangle where um, not unlike evidence-based practice we think about the three different components that might contribute to a crucial conversation so um, we're thinking about a conversation in which opinions might vary um, and I think that's one big piece there is that you might be having this conversation with someone who thinks quite differently than you um, emotions run strong and the stakes are high and so when I think about how this might apply to the average clinician or the average person working um, with the kids that we all care about so much um, in a school, um, it is the case a lot of times that almost every conversation is a crucial conversation. We're talking with parents who are very emotionally invested in the success of their children and education providers who are certainly also emotionally invested, but perhaps from a different perspective. Um, and in that case, opinions about the best choice for that child might vary. Um, and then certainly without question, the stakes are high there because we're thinking about the future of a child who's whose um, outcomes are really in our hands. And so I think um, that's one of the biggest differences of a crucial conversation that I think applies directly to clinical practice is thinking about how we can approach this maybe um, tumultuous possible situation um, in a way that really supports everybody involved and acknowledges everybody um, at the table. I think one thing about crucial conversations to me when I think about what is a crucial conversation, it's often ones that I'm having in my head already. So you, mm -hmm. you start just playing out those conversations thinking, oh, this is how it's going to go. This is how it's going to go. And it becomes very weighty. And for me, I tend to avoid those conversations, which is the opposite of what you need to do. And when I was reading um, the book, Crucial Conversations, there's also one called Crucial Confrontations. Yes. And I thought it was really interesting that when they study, for instance, um, what was the example? Like a plane crash was an example uh, that they gave in Crucial Confrontations. And when they started to investigate, there were many people that were concerned about what was going on, but no one spoke up. No one felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, to actually speak up, and that's you know, related to hierarchy, emotions, um, lots of different aspects go into it, but they make this very clear example that these conversations are so critical because they oftentimes involve something very high stakes, as you mentioned, Kelly, and in our field, like a child outcome, or if you're running a lab, then you know, you're talking about findings that will impact science and that you need to have run the best project you can and they're very weighty and I, I appreciate that you gave some nice examples um, in, when you spoke to my class about crucial conversations can you give us some mm -hmm. of those yeah well and I think some of this um, like I mentioned it, um, is related to my own clinical experience although now I've had the opportunity to apply these practices in my own work as a scientist in my lab, but also um, in, in the classes that I teach at Florida State and prior to Florida State at Emerson College. Um, so I think as a clinician, I had some experiences. Um, I was really interested in inclusive practices and working in the classroom with teachers um, and the kids who were on my caseload. And that always wasn't necessarily always well received. Um, and there was a variety of reasons for that. And that kind of created some obstacles for me as a clinician in implementing what I knew to be best practices. And so that has now also thinking about this full circle component, um, that has come full circle for me because a lot of my research now is focusing on how we can help clinicians advocate for um, best practices, in, particularly in school-based settings, but of course, hopefully applicable across settings. Um, 
So one example that I, I've shared is, is um, showing up at a fifth grade classroom, um, you know, bright and perky and ready to be in the classroom with the kids on my caseload who had language impairments and needed some extra support in language processing and vocabulary and following directions. And um, the teacher kind of greeted me at the door and then very quickly um, suggested that I leave and closed the door behind me. Um, and so that created a situation for me that I started you know, you mentioned talking about the, having the conversation in your head. I started a conversation in my head, um, and and that now I can fully share that I never did have the conversation with that teacher that needed to be had, um, but I certainly had a conversation in my head about it. Um, what I ended up finding out later um, was some of the pressures that this teacher was feeling about getting her class up to speed on math skills um, for the upcoming state assessment had caused her a lot of stress and created a situation in which, you know, I told myself a story about not being respected, not being appreciated, that she thinks I'm dumb, that she thinks I don't belong, that she thinks my services aren't helpful. I told myself this story. None of those things were true. Um, but that was the story I told myself because of this kind of tricky situation that I was in. So um, I'm glad to now have the skills, and I, I regret not having them at the time, but you know, you do the best you can with what you have at the time. Um, I know now that I think a crucial conversation would have really been helpful for me to be able to approach that situation with that teacher, um, share my perspective of what happened, um, which to be honest, she is very likely to be aware of whatsoever, um, and then to move forward in a way that ultimately is getting us both to the same end goal, which is to help the kids in that classroom. Clearly, she had the exact same end goal, right? We were just approaching it very differently and weren't at a place where we could have that crucial conversation. And so I think that's one example that kind of continues to fuel my thoughts when I think about how we can help clinicians really make the best of those situations and um, to hopefully not get into a stalemate where you kind of get stuck and not being able to move forward in a relationship with a collaborator in whatever capacity that is um, because you've kind of told yourself a story about what, what they're thinking or, or what they know um, when the reality is you just don't know that. Kelly, would you also say uh, that with that, your your uh, decision to not confront uh, that individual at the time, that you felt it was an all or none situation, that you felt like if you were to say something, you would lose that relationship totally. If, if, if for example, um, there was a relationship, I don't know about this teacher, but in, in general, sometimes we're afraid to have that crucial conversation um, because we think that the only outcome could be that you win it or you lose the friendship or the relationship and that there's no uh, third um, alternative of that you can still continue to have that relationship and still solve the 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 issue um, and so the that uh, some even to reframe it as you did to think about how could I have found some mutual uh, goal in this case that we both wanted the best for the kids and then to be able to have a conversation around that as opposed to uh, confronting in a way that would would then create a defensive situation where you felt like you even had to win or lose the relationship. I think that makes a lot of sense, Julie, and yeah, it really absolutely. highlights why crucial conversations are difficult. So some of the reasons they list in the book, crucial conversations is um, they're often spontaneous, so you feel unprepared. Uh, they have emotional reactions that are difficult to control. So a lot of times I know it's gonna be a crucial conversation because I feel emotions inside of me or I see the other person exhibiting emotion. 
Yes. And as I mentioned in the example of the plane crash, um, oftentimes there's superiority or hierarchy yeah. involved. So, yeah. um, you know, it may be a superior you have to talk to, or maybe you're the leader and you don't want to make someone feel uncomfortable um, and you want to encourage them still, but you still need to talk about something difficult. I think oftentimes- and I think that- <clears throat> Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, in this particular situation, I totally agree, Julie. Yes, I think that's absolutely- part of what happened. I didn't have the skill set to really address it, but also related to the specific point you just raised, Tiffany, this idea about superiority, it was a factor. I was a new um, I was a new faculty member in that elementary school, and I was still kind of learning the ropes just as a clinician in general, but I was certainly learning the ropes of that school and that community that I, I was not, I was new to that community as well. Um, and that teacher had worked in that school for probably 25 years, and I was about 25 years old at the time. And so there was definitely a superiority piece there that I felt that not only could I, I didn't have the skills to approach that situation, but I also was afraid of what the fallout might be. Yeah. Um, and it did feel like all or nothing, yeah. I think, I think that's really critical. I think the other thing that we've been conditioned oftentimes that we'd rather do anything to make a scene, right? So it seems like it's going to make oh, yeah. a scene. It's going to cause a problem. As you said, Julie, could break, make or break the relationship that we've taught, you know, we're taught to just, you know, let that person have their perspective. We have our perspective and just to avoid conflict at all costs. And that's what mm -hmm. this feels like. And also, I think because of that avoidance, sometimes there's just too much time that passes. So even your example, Kelly, maybe, you know, summer vacation occurs, it's still eating you like all t all the summer. But then when you go back, you kind of think like, oh, you know, now it's just already passed. It's not worth it, quote unquote, to have this conversation, even though it may come up again in a different form, that same kind of behavior. It still is this idea that you're having that conversation in your head. And I do remember one great example um, from the book is that, you know, we have, what you know, I guess I'll step back and say, why would there be a whole book on crucial conversations? Well, it's because <laughs> not only just, you know, we're not in situations where maybe a plane will crash, but we are in situations where um, we can start changing our own behavior and that will change the outcome of the interaction. So in this example, uh, in the book, they talked about, you may have a colleague who you feel is leaving you out of activities. So, you know, you're not being asked, let's say, to be on a certain project or whatnot. So then you may then start to act hostily to that colleague, meaning that you start to ignore them, you start to be cold. That colleague then, who maybe originally, one, didn't intend to leave you out, um, you know, just didn't send an email to include you or maybe thought you were too busy at the time, that colleague then starts to think, well, I don't know why this person is being rude to me now. I guess this person doesn't want to work with me. So then what happens is out of something that's very innocent, that could have involved a quick conversation of, hey, I felt left out. What was going on? Um, that person could say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. And then you just solve it right there. You move forward or you have a shared understanding. Instead, because the person felt left out, they start being cold. They start avoiding this person. What happens is a snowball effect where the person then is intentionally left out. And so, and that's all because of misinterpreted perspectives. And I like Kelly that you have really thought uh, through when you gave this uh, talk to the class about seeing another person's perspective and how critical that is to have a crucial conversation. And Julie, you've been, I know, uh, very interested in thinking about determining a person's perspective based on their strengths, for instance. So Julie, when we yes. started our NIH project, had us take a quiz about, you know, to kind of determine our strengths. Can you tell us about 
what that quiz was, what was the motivation, and how you see that playing into having a crucial conversation. Yes, I think, you know, one of the main uh, tenets of crucial conversations is that you can't change others, you can change yourself, you can change your behavior and how you respond to a situation and, um, and, and those skills, right? And, um, and, and one of, you know, a big piece of that is having some insight into your own self. And, and also sometimes even having some insights into the skills uh, of your team, um, those that you surround yourself with. Uh, I happen to be, I, I've been a department chair, I've been in different leadership positions uh, where uh, I have found that by thinking about who's on your team and the strengths that you have can, can really uh, help to again give insight a perspective but also can help in even building who's who is best to take on different types of activities and tasks uh, to the, be the best that we can be right and so when we just uh, kicked off our, our national institutes of health uh, research uh, you know as tiffany and i were, were thinking about as we were building our team and it is quite a a little bit of a larger team than typical for an nih project because it's multi sites and and not just in the United States we even have a partner in in London uh, and then you start to think about our postdoc fellows our PhD students um, you get further and further away uh, from you know it, well I should say you have different dynamics and we were just talking about even the power dynamics of um, maybe not wanting to bring up a question because you think somebody might know more than you uh, and so I thought it was a nice way uh, the uh, how we wanted to move forward uh, that we are a team, we are all rational authorities, um, we have a lot to contribute regardless of whether you've been out for 15 years with your PhD or, or one year, right? Um, and I think that's certainly how we've led our team, Tiffany. Um, but going forward, uh, one, one way we've done this and one way that I have found uh, helpful is to think about strengths. Now, as you mentioned, there's other ways to do this. I think there's Myers-Briggs tests out there. There's other uh, different ways to think about it. But the reason I like um, the strengths-based uh, leadership approach, um, which is uh, uh, there's a book out there called Strengths Finder by Tom Rath, um, and it's based on um, some of the work by Clifton in terms of thinking about themes of strengths. I like this idea that we know your themes of talent and that you can then focus on that. It doesn't mean that you can't improve in other areas, and it doesn't mean that you don't have strengths in a lot of areas. Um, but it's more about your inclination, what fills your cup and what, where, where you um, naturally go. Uh, and so that book has a, a there's a code, you can take a, a quiz online, but it comes up with your top five themes of talent. And so uh, within our, and then there's a, 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 a book that goes with it that's uh, strengths leadership. Uh, and, and then uh, as a, a complement, then you can look at the different domains of the, these uh, set of strengths. And so often what you find is that when people have their, uh, uh, when, they, when they take this, they'll have five top strengths and usually they will cluster in areas, main areas. And so there's these strengths categories of that um, strengths can be nested in, one, in areas that focus mostly on relationship building. Um, uh, focus um, that they cluster on influencing others. Um, maybe they cluster in strategic thinking 
or cluster in executing. Um, and uh, there, I think there's like 32 different themes of strengths, but they cluster in these four main areas. And usually you have one or two areas that you are more advanced in. Um, and so we did this exercise across our lab. I think there were nine of us that day. I'm, I'm trying to think, Tiffany, um, when we, we first started out that um, exercise. And it was really interesting because we saw across the group um, that we were all focused on relationship building. I thought that was an interesting outcome. And it helped us to think about how we wanted to target uh, thinking about and talking about um, if there were differences. Um, because I do think that fear of losing a relationship if we were to speak up might be a big factor. Um, if you think about those crucial conversations. So we had some really honest and frank discussions about that. Um, I myself am in the executing uh, category, meaning I like to get things done. I like my lists. I like uh, to uh, be efficient. But at the same time, then um, I need to be careful as a leader that I don't uh, take up too much space, if you will, and that I leave room for other people who want to be more strategic in their thinking, to have more discussions, to think more about the culture of the um, of the group, for example. Uh, and um, so that's a little bit of a perspective that I've, I've had. Um, and then, by the way, mostly, typically scientists, <laughs> Um, are not in the big influencing category. Um, so if you find those individuals who are your PR people on your team, um, that's, by the way, not me, but I work at this skill. I need to do that uh, where I live on a campus where I have to influence perhaps my president or my provost uh, to get uh, resources and advocate for my faculty. I have to work at this skill. But I also know that I have people on my team um, that are really talented at this skill and I can lean on. Uh, so so uh, that's one way to think about this, but it gives a little perspective about yourself and how to build a team um, where different people come to the table with their strengths um, to make a whole team even stronger. You know, I remember one thing I learned from that exercise was uh, even some verbiage that I can use as a leader to describe myself to others. So it's not just that you're learning about other people, but doing these things can also, I think, provide language for you. So for instance, my top strength was positivity. When you read about it, it was, you know, people think maybe you're not seeing all sides to the issue that you're just, you know, maybe wearing rose colored glasses or whatnot. And so it gave me some verbiage to be able to describe based on the book's description that I can let people know, like, I, I choose to see the positive side, but I do see all sides. I'm not in denial about it. I see it. I just choose to look at positive. And it also um, kind of highlighted, you know, I think for people working with you, you know, what are some of the, the perspectives that you take? I will say that I love, love, love these kinds of assessments and tests. And uh, I think they're really fun. And maybe it's the scientist in me. I like to classify everyone and categorize and count. Uh, but I will say I've had many discussions with people and, and especially my friends in social psychology that highlight that many of these can be unreliable and that just to keep in mind that this is one tool, right, to see someone's perspective. And social psychologists like often think about this idea of context so that you can have, you know, take the test in one context, let's say work, but you might 
be very different in your strengths that you portray at home, for instance, or in a different group of people. Um, but I still, having said that, think that these are really uh, helpful in determining that, first off, it really highlights, if you didn't already know, that everyone has a different perspective. But that is hard to understand sometimes, um, especially if you're looking at the same maybe data set or you're approaching the, the same problem, that everyone has different perspectives. And as long as we don't pigeonhole people into a certain perspective, it is kind of helpful to see all of these different components. And I think that this one is a particular one, but there's so many out there. You mentioned the Myers-Briggs. And Kelly, you talked specifically about one I thought was very cool for um, a class activity. You talked about mm -hmm. the compass points, which is self-selected. you not taking a quiz, but you just look at some characteristics. Can you tell us about the compass points and how that's been useful for you? Yeah, I love this activity, um, and it's one I learned about um, when I was faculty at Emerson College. Their Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning um, had a, a, a kind of a roundtable activity where um, those of us who were interested in, in getting more information about how to improve our own teaching went to this workshop, and we learned about the compass points. Um, and it's the idea is really to understand the dynamics of behavior, um, particularly during team-based work. And so I've used this in some of my graduate-level classes. And um, the feedback that I've gotten from graduate students is, is really interesting in that um, they have found a combination of um, um, kind of their outcomes were like, oh my gosh, I work with you so well because we're exactly the same. Or I work so well with you because we're on opposite sides of this compass and we complement one another. And so the idea is that there are four compass points, north, south, east, and west. Um, I won't go through the exact, um, I'll, I'll maybe give an example, but I won't go through um, the details of each one, but you do listen to a list of characteristics within each of the four compass points, and then you do self-select which one of these most resonates with you. Um, I think to a point that you already, you both already raised, that this is maybe not as reliable as, um, as other types of metrics, and it's certainly not foolproof or to, to meant to represent the only way that you can possibly operate. Um, but I think it is helpful in kind of understanding your own strengths within a group, um, but then helping to understand, like Julie said, um, how other people will bring strengths to your group as well. And I think, like Julie, um, so considering the compass points, I identify as a North. And the characteristics in that category are acting, product-oriented, and want to get it done and get it done now. And so like Julie, I think about you know getting things done, crossing things off my list, moving efficiently through a system, knowing that it's a possibility that um, I may leave someone feeling like they weren't heard because I just want to move through it as opposed to really letting someone else who may be um, maybe an East um, who has big ideas and want to consider all the options, I might not let that person share their all the possibilities that they want to consider before they feel like comfortable making a decision. And so that has been really helpful for me, not just in understanding how I operate as a leader, but also in making sure that I am taking into consideration the way that I'm perceived and the way that other people um, may need to operate in order to feel safe and successful in a particular situation. Um, so I really loved doing this with my graduate students because it's fascinating to see not only how they self-identify, but before I share with them what my compass point is, I, I ask them. And very few of them across the years have actually identified me as a North. And I think in part, it's because of the way that I interact with them in a class, which is, well, what do you think? What could it be? It could be this theory, it could be that theory. 
Because in that particular context, I am thinking a little bit more big picture, as opposed to the students who've maybe worked on a thesis with me who know that I'm like, let's get this done, let's move forward, let's do this, here's the next thing. Um, and so I think it also has a lot to do, um, a, a lot of um, helpful tools for yourself when you start thinking about how other people perceive you. I'm, um, yeah, I'll say that I'm an yeah. East. Uh, yes. So an East is considering a big, pers big idea person, and I also want to consider all options and I want to discuss all possibilities before acting, which I think can at times drive a North crazy because I want to just talk, talk, talk it out, talk it out, talk it out. It seems like maybe I'll never move forward. And I think that realizing that in myself and my, my preferred tendency to do that, I tend to surround myself with people who are uh, more North, uh, um, you know, case in point, Kelly and Julie, that are <laughs> wanting to kind of at some point say, okay, we've talked about it enough, let's move forward and let's get going on this deadline, uh, which is hard for me because I just wanna be in like think land, like think about big ideas. I also um, have a, I'll say right now, I have a, I think an unnatural affinity to the compass because when we first did this activity a few years ago, I, I discovered that in the lab at that time, our the four uh, leaders in the lab were all four points of the compass so we started you know buying compass you know things <laughs> i have a compass in my office hanging on the wall i have we give we gave each other compass gifts i'm actually going to see those gals who've moved on now to other positions are coming in town this weekend and we said let's get the compass together so i have a really strong affinity towards the compass and I, because of that i am going to say um a few of the points so that you can and as you're listening to the podcast maybe you can think what is your compass point so kelly mentioned that she and julie are north which is acting product oriented and they want to get it done and get it done now and i will say like kelly said that this is just a preference that you might have so if you think of a certain situation so if i think about my work situation I am, you know, clearly an East, but if I think of a different situation, like at home, I'm actually more of a North. Um, and that's because of the context of other people. And we, we have all of these characteristics inside of us, but it's kind of what we prefer, what we feel most comfortable with and what we prefer in a certain context. So that's North for Julie and Kelly. And then I'm East, which I said is considering and really thinking about big ideas, not really focusing on the details as much, but more the big picture and wanting to consider all possibilities. The South, their um, characteristics are very caring, concerned with group feelings. So feelings is the critical part here. And they want to be certain that everyone has been heard. Everyone's ideas are considered before acting. So they're those people in meetings who say, I haven't heard from Julie. I'd like to hear what she has to say, that that's really always on their mind, that everyone is heard and that everyone's feelings are attended to. West is uh, those who are really focused on planning. They're very detail oriented and they need to know the who, what, why, when and where and how before they act. So they want to have all the details pinned down. And um, I really like those people because I'm not as detail oriented. So um, I think that, you know, if you think I have to say we when I had that team, it was really high functioning team because we had all of these points covered. But we also had, did have to have some crucial conversations at times to get each other's perspective. The other part I love that you do in this activity, Kelly, is you have people organized by their self-identified compass point, and then they answer some questions, which are quite fun, like, you know, um, adjectives or short uh, phrases that describe the strength of your group, the limitations of your group, which group do you find most difficult to work with and why? Mm -hmm. 
And what do others need to know about your group in order to be effective? So you could even think internally as you're listening to this podcast, which one are you and how would you answer some of those questions like strengths, limitations, um, the group that you find difficult and why, and also what other people need to know about you in order to work with you effectively because that could help you communicate in your own team. So Kelly, what are some of the funny things you remember about those group group activities? (laughs) Well... (laughs) Sorry to me and Julie, but most people um, find the Norths the most difficult to work with, Um, which I've always really found funny because I don't think, um, I think once I do reveal to my students or even to your class that I identify as a North, I think it it could be surprising because there's this, oh, well, I wouldn't, I don't think of you as hard to work with, Um, although certainly there there may be some exceptions to that. But um, I think it's interesting because we do um, first kind of self-identify and then um, we think about why some of these um, characteristics are seen as both strengths and limitations. So I think it's a nice reflective opportunity. Um, And I think just really having the conversation of without judgment, why would you find this particular group the most difficult to work with? Um, You know, so it's not that I don't care about people's feelings. You know, I don't necessarily identify as a South, but it's certainly not the case that I don't care about people's feelings through the process. Um, I tend to be a little bit more focused on making sure that we're taking action and moving forward. Um, But this has also helped me make sure that I am circling back to um, make sure that everybody does feel included. I think that's the funniest thing for me. And you you mentioned the different um, context in which you, you might operate under. And so, you know, my husband, um, I have, um, identif- as a North, I'm going to identify his, his compass point for him. Um, I identify him as a West, very detail oriented, which has been super helpful for me. You know, when we're planning trips and stuff, he, he takes care of a lot of those points, but it's not the case that I don't have that capacity. Right. So I think that's another important thing to remember is that if I'm traveling by myself, it's not like I get lost. I know I can take care of the details. I just prefer not to. And so I think these are really helpful in kind of thinking about areas that you prefer to work in when you're working in a team in particular. And I think that's the other thing to to keep in mind. One more point that I wanted to just make, kind of circling back to something that Julie said, um, one of the reasons that all of these activities have been helpful for me, so the leadership program, Crucial Conversations, the Compass Points activity, the Myers-Briggs assessment, is really because it helps me remember that these are skills that can be improved. And so um, I know that as a young clinician, as a young researcher, I was maybe not so good at some of these points and not that I'm um, exponentially better now, but I've certainly used these opportunities to grow and to read more, to watch more YouTube videos, read more books in this in this area to help improve some areas of weakness of my own. And I think that's an important takeaway is that these are skills you can improve as long as you want to. And for me, it's really um, inspirational to see that you two, who I admire and look up to, and my mentor and my fairy god mentor, um, are actively continuing to work on this self-improvement. And I think that's something so important for clinicians and researchers to know is that these are skills we can improve as long as we put the effort in. I love that, Kelly. And I do think, uh, you know, circling back again to you know, these these exercises, uh, you know, whether they're based on solid scientific foundation, you know, that's debatable. Sure. What it allows for and what it sounds like you've been able to do in your classroom situation, I certainly do with my faculty, is it allows for the conversation and to be able to have a, a similar language to then have the discussion about 
how do you prefer to receive feedback? How do you prefer to uh, have a meeting go? What's your comfort level in making sure, again, you're heard? Um, and uh, those are then the conversations that you can have in a very transparent and crucial way that allow for uh, us to gain insight into each other to have a more effective team um, and then be more effective leaders. So I, I'll share with you, um, uh, Tiffany knows this because I, I got to see her in Boston last week because I was there for a couple weeks um, with the Harvard Leadership uh, Institute. There was a, I was, went to a management development program uh, for two weeks and it was, it was wonderful. And again, uh, I take the time and, and know that I need to continue to develop in these skills. Um, like you said, Kelly, I don't know if everyone knows I'm in North or they know I get things done and I'm pretty tenacious in working to implement things um, to, to make great change, but the reality is um, that you're absolutely right. We can't uh, just be looking at leadership through our one lens that, by the way, we're very comfortable with in a particular context. Uh, and so one of the things that I thought was just so helpful um, at this institute and certainly I'm learning from leaders that have devoted their lives to, um, to focusing on this particular piece. But um, Bowman and Deal uh, are two uh, uh, researchers that have talked about reframing organizations. They have a, a textbook on this, but um, they think about, uh, the, the, they present this idea that there's four frames of leadership and how we need to view and think about our own leadership styles. And you might have preferences, but a good leader will be able to change from one frame to a next, to, to another, um, and uh, be able to lead through those frames. And so the frames include um, uh, the uh, structural frame, uh, thinking about an organization and thinking about how you lead is in terms of policies, procedures, those real specific details that we just talked about those are important. Some people are really comfortable in that frame. Um, maybe they stay in that frame, but then you also would need this uh, human resource frame, which is really focused on communications, relationships. Um, what we were talking about, if you think about that strengths finder, it's that relationship building. Um, you're thinking about the glue that holds the team together. Um, you're thinking about the unique ability to create um, um, uh, change by, by uh, thinking about collective energy, those kind of things. That's, that would be the human resource, that, that, that term is what they use. Um, the other frame is what they consider the symbolic frame. Um, and the symbolism is really about that culture, the culture of a group um, coming in and making change um, how are you thinking about how you're changing the culture and the dynamics of a group? And um, spending some time um, having discussions and crucial conversations around that is really important. Um, that's probably the frame I'm, by the way, a little bit weaker in because I want to move to change quickly. I don't always take as much time as needed to really explore those, um, those uh, symbolic, the symbolic lens of, of what does this mean for change, for example. 
example. Um, and then finally, the fourth frame is thinking about um, political, you know, that we do need to be strategic and how as leaders, if you are making change, you need to make sure that all your stakeholders and who are they, because there's lots of different stakeholders. In a school system, you have your parents, you have your, your teachers, you have your professionals, you have your principals, you have, you know, I, I work on a dyslexia task force for the state. I'm thinking of my legislatures, I'm thinking of um, my Office of Public Instruction and what are their goals, and, and trying to match and think about how what I do can, we can come up with a solution that's similar. We might have we might have very different lenses, but how do I bring us together um, to come up with that, you know, that we all have one goal that we can work on from a visionary perspective. So um, just to, I, I put that out there because I've been really thinking about how I continually uh, shift and pivot between these frames. And if there is one area that I might not be as strong in, it doesn't mean that I don't need to work on it as a leader, be aware of it, be strategic, and then even, identify team members that are really strong in this to help remind me in a meeting, for example, we didn't talk about this and let's explore this. And by the way, give them empowerment to have that crucial conversation um, to, again, you know, be a rational authority in a meeting where I might be leading it. They need to feel like they can interrupt me as well, right? It's interesting that those four frames do map on they uh, do quite well. To I was the, wondering right? that. Yeah, it seems like you need to have I, that's exactly right? what I was thinking. Yeah. That you know, even though we have our compass yeah. of where we fit, and you know, even the strengths finders, um, it, it maps on very readily, right? In terms of those those quadrants, um, that uh, yes, uh, so so having the discussion of where are you on the compass, we complement each other. But by the way, you need to be skating between those all the time, right? Absolutely. And adapting your leadership. And a good leader, like you said, Kelly, you're likely a very good leader when they say they don't identify yep. you as a North because you readily change across all of those quadrants. And, um, and hopefully, I mean, I would hope on my good days that people would think that about me. Um, but certainly there are days when I just think, I just got to get it done and I mm -hmm. get into that mode and I have to stop myself. Wait a minute. Um, there's some, some other pieces I need to be thinking about here. I actually, it's not uncommon for me, you know, talking about skating between those um, as an East big picture to sit down with my team and go, okay, we got to build a frame here. We got to look at the details. I just yes. almost like, I just try to admit like, oh, okay, this is not my favorite part, but we can do this. We got to do it. You know, and it's almost like I have to reframe the importance of this within my own view of big picture. Yes. So it's like, I'm constantly like, okay, yeah. we have to, we're going to do these details because here's the bigger picture. You know, back to what you said, Kelly, about this activity, um, what struck me about it, I mean, the North thing is very funny too, that people are like, oh, North, but what struck me the most, well, me, I have a, you know, a love for North, um, but I think that what struck me is that when we got in the groups, everyone was like, oh my gosh, you're like me. And everyone felt yeah. so good, you know, like, oh, you're just like me. But then in that process, you also realize even through the activity why you need other people. So of course you can imagine the East group that I was in, we were all these big picture, you know, talking it out. So we had a 15 minute timeline and we were the ones that never got done. And mm -hmm. we were thinking like, oh, we really needed to have a North with us to help us get right. done. And so through the process, it was kind of a meta experience that was really funny. And then of course the West and the Norse were done right away, right away. Yep. And then the South mm -hmm. and the East are just, you know, talking it out and really getting into it. And mm -hmm. 15 minutes, we weren't done. So I think that's really 
critically important. Um, I know we have to wrap up our time. This has been such a great discussion. I think what I want to do uh, for a few minutes before we wrap up, and we've touched on it tangentially, but I wanted to highlight one of the um, components of crucial conversations that I often think about, and that is the acronym they use to have a crucial conversation, and the acronym is STATE, which I like because it's kind of like state your you know, thoughts. The first part of it, S, is for share your facts. So that is when you're having a crucial conversation, and I'm going to use your example, Kelly, of talking to the teacher so I can make this really um, clear as possible. Um, if you're stating, you're sharing your facts there, you would just say, um, you know, that you, this is what you're observing. And it goes into the T, tell your story. So what you would do is you would say, uh, you know, when I come, you would say, when I come to the door, what I notice is when I ask for the child, you roll your eyes and you shut the door. And so that what that, what I'm starting to conclude, so you're telling your story, what I'm starting to conclude from these actions. So those are the facts, right? This is what's happening. My story is, that you don't want me to see your children. Or I'm also starting to even think you don't think that what I'm doing is valuable. And then you want to ask for the other person's path. That's the A. So ask their past. So say, you know, please tell me, you know, how you're perceiving this um, interaction. What is, you know, what's really going on here from your perspective. So then you have to listen very carefully and you also also want to, in the next T of state, you want to talk tentatively. So you want to share your perception, but you don't want to create as facts. So you want to be careful you're talking about the facts, which is the facts are she rolled her eyes, she shut the door. But the fact is not that she doesn't want you to be there. That's your fact. That's the story you're telling yourself. But the facts are the facts, and the story is your perception of it. And I think what's interesting about Crucial Conversations, what really got me in reading the book, is that those facts and the story you tell yourself become so tied in your mind that the facts become, this person doesn't want me here. That becomes a fact in your mind, but that's actually not a fact. That's your perception. That's not a fact. That's the perception. And so you have to talk tentatively and really encourage yourself to separate out what's fact versus what is my perception. And then you want to encourage testing. So the testing part for the E is making it safe and clear to the person that it's okay for them to have a different perspective and that you are making it very clear to them what are the facts versus what is your perception and that you're very open to a different perception, that you're open to their facts so that you're not saying, again, you could think about the conversation going both ways. If you use the state model of sharing your facts, telling your story, asking for the other person's path, talking tentatively, encourage testing, that conversation would be, it would be very clear to that teacher that you're not accusing them that you're trying to take some of the emotion out of it and that you are open to their perception and in the way we mentioned. But the other way would be to just go to her and say, you know, you're, you know, I'm coming to see this child. And it's very clear to me that you just don't want me to be there. I can see exactly. that. It's obvious. Yep. It's obvious. You don't care about what I do, blah, blah, blah. Now you can imagine the emotions are getting high. You've put words in the person's mouth. They didn't mm -hmm. say that they had, there were actions, but they didn't say that. And it just shuts down the conversation. It creates something very defensive. We always say in my house, like put on the helmet for football and start to plan defense. And so we'll say like, take the helmet off. So it's mm -hmm. like, you get very defensive. It's automatic reaction. And so the whole point of crucial conversations is try to eliminate that defensiveness. That's very human and human nature and to encourage this open dialogue. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, I love that acronym too because it, it that was kind of revolutionary for me I have to admit because it really does 
Um, I'm very good at telling myself stories about what what I think someone else is thinking or what a, um, what has to absolutely be true about a particular situation because of my experience with it and my perception of it. And I, so I think this idea of just stating the facts helps you boil down like, but what actually happened? So this person never said, I don't like you, get out of my classroom, you know, anything. And this is both a personal and professional um, weakness of mine that I, I tell myself these stories of, of what, what could possibly have happened here. Um, and so that, that just very first part of that acronym, share your fact or state the facts, has been, okay, what I do know is I walked into the room and she closed the door. That is actually all I know. I also know how I felt as a result of that, right? So I can tell my story. But I think one important thing that I wanted to um, to tie to just as, as in terms of some resources for um, your listeners is that that part, the tell your story, you don't get very far into that acronym before it starts to really feel difficult. That's probably the hardest part is telling your story because it's very vulnerable to say, this is something that happened. So here's the reality, here's the fact, and here's how it made me feel. And that's hard because you're, you're showing your vulnerability and you're really showing maybe some anxiety that you have or maybe some of your own insecurities that um, that can be really hard to share, especially with a person who perhaps in this situation you might not necessarily want to share that vulnerable part of you. Um, and so I've really enjoyed the work of Brene Brown in this area of vulnerability um, and her TED Talks and her books because that has also helped me understand how important it is to be transparent and to show that part of you. Um, that's not something that's easy for me. And so that's something that, again, I've, I've continued to be able to work on because I, I think about it and I want to get better in that area. Um, but it is hard. That's, that's for sure. It's very difficult. And I think using that example, the listeners may be thinking, but wait, what if the teacher says, yeah, I don't respect what you do. And I, I, <laughs> that was right. Your story's right. And then but I think that's still that you still have tools in the crucial conversations kind of toolbox. And that is to constantly reframe for purpose. So let's say the teacher does think that and you say, okay, you know, I respect your opinion, but I do want us to think about what, why I'm here, you know, what is our, and I know you, you can say, I, I you know, I, I assume, and I want to confirm you care what happens with this child and the child does well. I also share that purpose. So we're coming from a shared purpose. So then yes. coming from that shared purpose, can we then think of a, a solution to this that we're both comfortable with. And so it really does kind of focus on that mutual purpose and then mutual respect. Cause then you're saying to the person, even though maybe they're showing in your mind a disrespect for you or what you're doing, but you can still, when you refocus on the purpose, you're showing them a respect right there. Absolutely. And I guess going with that, the, the other part that I think is, is powerful and even shifting this a little bit, because I think we can think of it in a, when we think this professional way where it's like, well, yeah, I, I might lose a little bit of a relationship with this individual, but it's okay because that person's not close to me. I don't have a long-term relationship. I only see them once a week. Then think about the stakes are so much higher when you start thinking about uh, perhaps um, your boss or you think of, of uh, in, in a context in which it's, you know, you, so I don't know, I'm thinking about in a school, this is with your, uh, the special education, a related service provider. You're trying to work 
very closely with as an SLP, this is a daily interaction. Now the stakes are even harder and higher and, um, that you've got to work through this, right? And that is the crucial conversation. I know that um, another acronym that's used in, uh, that I, I find helpful is the CPR. Uh, acronym um, and is that's the the one also from crucial conversations and they talk about the content the pattern and the relationship and I think especially when it's more than a one-time thing that's absolutely when you need to have the crucial conversation that there are patterns and so the way to get around that the way to think about that is the context is yes the um so pardon me the the, the context things are happening in context and in this case it's it's something that's affecting you you need to make it change to be able to in this case for example do your job um and what if every time you went to go pull a child you know or or go into a classroom that door closed right there's a pattern now right um so now um it, it's not about a one-time thing oh well that day we had a test going on because there's some have you had the that in, in instance where there's always an excuse that you have um, tried to actually address it and there's always an excuse mm -hmm. and so now um, this CPR allows you to get into um, and I always I love the crucial conversations is what is the real issue here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so the C is content the content is whenever I go to the door to be part of that in, engage in in what my job is you close the door <laughs> um, that that's the content but the pattern is that, that um, your action indicates that I'm not a valued member of this team mm -hmm. and I, and also that I'm not able to, to do my job as mm -hmm. I need to um, and then you can talk to you. the R is about the relationship and if this is um, you know vital you know sometimes that is the real problem you might try and solve it she's not going to close the door now but she still sighs she's mm -hmm. still you know whatever it is that mm -hmm. if unless you talk about what the real is problem is is that I you're not valuing me as an equal member of this team our relationship then you're not really having the crucial conversation mm -hmm. and I think that's the other big challenge not just the vulnerability that I really loved you mentioned that Kelly but even really taking the time to think about what is the real problem am I talking about a symptom the mm -hmm. actions the content or am I talking about in this case the relationship was really what I needed to address um, and that sometimes takes a while to figure out what is the real issue going on that's that I'm going to walk away from this feeling like at least we addressed it. I think that's really critical. And I, I'll wrap up our conversation by saying just a few more points. What a great conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Julie and Kelly. Um, I think that, Kelly, you mentioned this. This is something you have to practice. Because one thing about crucial conversations, they say, is that you should be able to have the conversation right on the spot. And we've talked a lot about what you have to evaluate internally. So it almost sounds like we're saying you need to take a long time to think about this. But what happens, I think, is that as you practice these skills, you become... Yes quicker to do it in the moment because then you can use yep. the verbiage you can kind of separate quickly fact versus story look for patterns mm -hmm. and what I've learned too is that as you do this as a colleague and even as a friend is that you can then start to say things like trust me because if there is a problem I will bring it forward because then mm -hmm. if you're you know maybe you have a situation where you're kind of always questioning the other person's actions right so you're like I don't know and I feel this in the leadership role a lot where I can say Someone will say, well, you did this, so I thought you were mad, or you did this, and I thought you were unhappy with my performance, or you did this, and I thought you left me out. But when you are 
when you have these conversations, you can tell that person, don't worry, I will come to you and have a conversation. I'm not afraid to have crucial conversations. Mm -hmm. And then also you can encourage them to have those conversations with you. So I think it builds a really strong trust when you can do it well and do it often and, and practice it with your team. And the other key point I think to remember is that one, um, one big focus in the book is that if emotions are high, you should actually end the conversation. So if it becomes, you're supposed to constantly be monitoring. And if the emotions are just too high, the other person is just too emotional, it's very okay to say, I know this is, this seems to be very stressful. You're emotional. Let's, let's take a break and, you know, take some time to process and come back together and start over. And that's very appropriate to do that. Um, and then you can gauge the time based on, you know, how, you know, quickly you have to move on a situation. You say, I'll give you an hour. We really need to solve this. Or, you know, let me know in a few days if it's maybe less um, time oriented and sensitive. So um, thank you again for your time. Um, and I just really appreciate uh, this conversation. I'm hoping that the listeners also, it drives them to think more deeply about the words that they're using and the stories they might be telling. And they can, uh, you know, maybe look into these resources, the books, and there's some, some great online resources as well. Tiffany, um, I, can I, you can decide to, uh, this is funny on a podcast, you can decide to cut this out. Maybe you don't have <laughs> enough time. Um, can I read a poem to you? Somebody just gave this to me. Oh, that's um, great. I will not cut this. Of course, I love it. Well, no, and it's from a fellow, somebody at this leadership conference I was just at, and it's, I now have it pinned next to my desk, in, um, um, and I'm loving it. Um, so it's, it's a poem for a leader um, by John O'Donohue um, from the book To Bless the Space Between Us, um, and it's an Irish, Irish um, uh, blessing. Okay. Um, um, may you have the grace and wisdom to act kindly, learning to distinguish between what is personal and what is not. May you be hospitable to criticism. May you never put yourself at the center of things. May you act not from arrogance, but out of service. May you work on yourself, building up and refining the ways of your mind. May those who work for you know you see and respect them. May you learn to cultivate the art of presence in order to engage with those who meet you. When someone fails or disappoints you, may the graciousness with which you engage be their stairway to renewal and refinement. May you treasure the gifts of the mind through reading and creative thinking so that you continue as a servant of the frontier where the new will draw its enrichment from the old and you never become a functionary. May you know the wisdom of deep listening the healing of wholesome words, the encouragement of the appreciative gaze, the decorum of held dignity, the springtime edge of the bleak question. May you have a mind that loves frontiers so that you can evoke the bright fields that lie beyond the view of the regular eye. May you have good friends to mirror your blind spots. May leadership be for you a true adventure of growth. Oh, thank you so I much. I love that. <laughs> thank you, Julie. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for both of you for being on the podcast. Of course. Love being here. Thank you, you too. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, 
research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.